Welcome to Bread. From the beginning, God's people have engaged in the regular worship of God. From a biblical perspective, not only is worship of God our highest calling, it is in fact integral to who we are. So understanding what worship is, how we do it, and practicing it enables us to become more fully ourselves. This short series covers the worship life of Bread. From sung worship and services on a Sunday, to a general posture of worshipfulness throughout our daily lives, to worshiping God with our resources, our time, and our gifting. Enjoy! Uh, good morning, everyone. Very nice to see you. Um, welcome. If you're visiting us, mothers in the house, it's good to have you with us. My name is Ed, and along with Hannah, I lead the church that meets here. Um, and this is our final talk on our series in uh, worship. Uh, we've looked at worship in the singing of the Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs that Paul talks about. We've seen worship in the context of church services, uh, particularly with reference to the spiritual gifts and how they work when we all come together. Last week, uh, Hannah looked at worship as a lifestyle of generosity, reflecting the generosity um, of him it is whom we worship. And uh, this week is uh, kind of following on from there. Uh, worship and giving. Yes, your favorite subject. This morning, I'm talking about money, money, money. Uh, it is actually all about money uh, today, um, but also how it relates to uh, worship, which I will end with. Now, we do these uh, talks kind of twice a year, um, and I want to you to know that if you're a guest, if you're a visitor, if you're checking us out, if you don't sort of count this as your home church, please feel completely free to let everything that I have to say just wash over you, go on Instagram, uh, spend the time, you know, composing tweets, that sort of thing. This is not for you. It's really for the in-house team. If you consider yourself a person who is part of the church, then it's for you. Um, but obviously, hopefully you'll find what I, find, uh, what I have to say interesting, and uh, you're very welcome um, to become part of the church. We'd love to have you part of the church. Um, it'll be good. Uh, so, that's a little... Um, caveat to what I'm going to say. So in a minute, we're going to hear from uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy, uh, but let me give you a bit of background to that letter now. Timothy was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother, and he was most likely converted by Paul as a kind of late teen or early adult in one of um, Paul's earliest missionary journeys. And he then is sort of adopted by Paul. He travels with Paul. Uh, he becomes his representative to the churches in Corinth. Excuse me. Uh, in Corinth and Philippi, and he's there when Paul writes some of his greatest hits, uh, the letters in the New Testament. And then finally, uh, Timothy is installed as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Uh, and it's um, in that context that Paul writes these two letters, first and two Timothy, to him. Paul, at this point, is late on in life. He is um, happy old Paul, expecting to die very soon. And therefore, he is encouraging and instructing Timothy in how to keep firm to the faith that he and the other apostles have established, and how particularly to pastor this uh, increasingly difficult church in Ephesus. Uh, so probably because Paul is getting on in years a little bit, um, and therefore has less patience for some niceties, and almost certainly because these letters are addressed to one person as opposed to a church in general, um, and it's a person that Paul loves and trusts and knows well, uh, then they are of a sort of slightly different character. Basically, um, they are direct, they are personal, and they are often lacking in subtlety. 
from Paul. He just uh, has all um, uh, no holds barred. He isn't messing around. He's just going to say it like it is. And so on the one hand, he's very um, encouraging of uh, Timothy, the pastor and the leader, whilst also really taking no prisoners in his instructions about how Timothy, this young leader, should lead. It's worth bearing that all in mind uh, when we read this letter because um, now and again it sounds quite Paul and harshy, just saying. Uh, maybe we'll do a series on First and Second Timothy and wives and widows and women. Uh, maybe. Or maybe not. <laughs> anyway, uh, the passage we're going to hear is um, Paul's instruction to Timothy in dealing actually with four different groups of people. The first are false teachers, the second are the poor, the third is actually Timothy, Timothy himself, and the fourth is the rich. So this is 1 Timothy 6, starting um, halfway through verse 2, and um, Je- uh, Jess. Jess is going to read it wherever. Jess, Jess. Round of applause for Jess. the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food, clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed and only ruler the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. 
In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, and so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jess. A nice long passage there. As I said, four different groups. The first group is the false teachers. They have uh, deviated from the faith, says Paul. They've given up on the sound, or actually more accurately, healthy. The healthy instruction of Jesus Christ. The instruction that brings health and good teaching, verse 3. As such, they are conceited and understand nothing, says Paul, verse 4. Actually, the literal translation is a little bit more than that. Um, really, it should be, they are self-centered idiots. Good old Paul. Uh, he has set his filter to filter nothing. So, having given, having given up Jesus' teaching, which is healthy, they have instead become obsessed with controversies and quarrels which are, verse 4, unhealthy. All of which leads to envy and strife and malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind. It is dividing the church, and tellingly, it has led them to think that, verse 4, godliness is a means to financial gain. Uh, isn't it sad, but also maybe somewhat reassuring, I guess, to know that the problems of the church that we have now, like pastors with private jets and Gucci endorsements and embezzlement charges, are actually not new. People have been looking to get rich off godliness since the beginning. How reassuring, wonderful. But seriously, given that, let's be aware that it will most likely keep happening. And so let us vigilantly guard against it in this church, our own house. Now, I hope it's somewhat clear, at least, that um, when it comes to bread, no one's getting rich off this. I mean, look at it. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, particularly as the church grows, things can change, and we would be foolish not to believe that we are all susceptible. Things can change, and we always need to be accountable. It's something that we think is very important. Uh, we have a board and we have a treasurer. Their primary roles are to make sure that we are responsible with the money we receive, and we want to be as transparent as possible with everything. Um, so if you have any questions about anything, you can email our treasurer. His email is treasurer at bread.church, and he will answer your questions about anything. Uh, he will also not thank me for telling you that email. Um, our financial year is coming to an end in June. Uh, we run July to June. And as we do every half year, we publish a sort of basic view of the money comes in and the money goes out so that you can have a look at it. We will send it as we always do uh, on our emails. It's just so that we can uh, try to be as white as white with this. Godliness is never a means to financial gain, says Paul. So as a community, can we hold each other accountable? Which, if I may, can I do for all of us, including myself right now? Leaving aside the glaringly obvious, the gold-plated pastors, I wonder if we are all, and I include myself in this, susceptible of falling into uh, this trap in our own personal lives. Do we not, from time to time, try and bargain with God? I know I do. God, if I just pray a little bit more would you just do that thing that I need would you just give me a bit more money if I give some money away will you give me more money 
I'm happy to do it if, if I definitely get more. <laughs> if I serve more, if I read my Bible more, if I confess more, will you not just do it for me? In short, if I just try to be a little bit more godly, will you not benefit me, financially or otherwise? Ever done that? Of course you haven't. The end is no longer godliness. Jesus is not what we're going after anymore. Godliness becomes the means. The end is now money, because actually it's money. That's what we actually want, if we're completely honest. Paul's response is this, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to be rich, he says. You want to gain in this life. Don't go after money. Be godly and content instead. He moves here from an attack on the false teachers to first an encouragement and then a challenge to those who are materially poor. So, can I ask you another question? Are you poor? Do you consider yourself right now to be poor? It's not a trick question. It is a completely legitimate question because, after all, everything is relative, is it not? You could be in one room and feel extremely wealthy and in another room and feel completely and utterly bereft of everything, right? So it is a legitimate question. How are you actually feeling right now? Be honest. Do you feel poor? Paul's encouragement is this. The only way to always feel rich is not in fact connected to what we have materially, nor the size of our bank account whatsoever at all. Rather, to be rich is to be content. And I think intrinsically we know this, don't we? Just out of interest, how many of us have at times fantasized about some version of, well, maybe we should just leave LA, sell everything, and move to the countryside? We could just move to a farm, couldn't we? And we would bake our own bread, and knit our own clothes, and be incredibly happy. <laughs> but we do know, actually, don't we? It's not just a joke. We do know that they would bring an element of, content, uh, of contentment. No longer do we have to worry about TikTok trends. We are just in the countryside, shut off from everything. I once had a fantasy about um, starting a vineyard in south, the south of France. I thought that would be really fun. I mean, obviously, it would require huge amounts of money, but leaving that aside, I thought starting a vineyard would be great. And then some friends of mine actually did start a vineyard in the UK, and it was just a lot of work. <laughs> they had to get up at like four in the morning and spend a lot of time in mud, uh, which just didn't sound fun at all. Nevertheless, there is an attraction to the simple life, and it's real. It's actually godly. It helps to break the incorrect connections that culture feeds us that wealth is tied to contentment. No, says Paul, verse 8. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Now, the word for clothing here literally means covering, and it's often used to mean shelter or house. So really, he's saying food, clothing, shelter. That's what we need. We are on a journey through life, one which we entered without anything and one which we will leave without anything. But in order to be content on this journey, we need these three things, food, clothing, and shelter. These are essential. And so not having any one of those three is not contentment. 
It's actually destitution, and no one can be content with that. Are they everything? Food, shelter, clothing? Probably not. Paul is not some Scrooge here saying, this is the maximum anyone should ever have. Rather, he's describing the minimum. You have to have these things in order to be content. After all, he has already described God as the great creator, the good creator who gives gifts to his children. And he will go on in verse 17 to say that he is the one who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. These are hardly the words of some sort of ascetic, someone actually trying to reduce the enjoyment of life by saying that we can't have anything. God does not call us to forgo all or any pleasures in life. He is the God of abundance and joy and riches. Just look at his universe that he's created. Isn't it wonderful? If he wanted us to be completely without anything, surely he would have just made it a bit like communist Russia. That's what he would have made it. Paul is not promoting austerity. He's saying go for contentment, though, in the place of materialism and covetousness. So given all this, can I challenge you in a slightly different direction? If you see people who are struggling for the essentials, food, clothing, and shelter, shouldn't it be these people we are particularly attentive towards? They don't even have the minimum to be, called, to be what we are called to be, which is content. And particularly for those people who come to our church, who are here in the room together. I know there are people here who have been working their butts off. They have been hustling wherever they can, but they are struggling with rent. They are struggling to eat. They are struggling with clothes. I know that to be true. I wanted to, and I asked the staff, meeting with, staff team whether we should do this, is ask people to come up who were in need, who could just tell us what their needs were. And we decided it probably um, was a little bit exposing. But as a church, can we just look out for these people? If you know them, and you are able to, and God moves your heart, would you be able to cover someone's rent, buy them something that they need, desperately need, in order to be content? That's what church is about. That's what church should do. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And then we could hear the stories of, I was in need, and someone anonymously gave me what I needed. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Good? That'd be good church, right? Great. So, to the poor, firstly, Paul encourages contentment. And secondly, he warns against covetousness. Verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Now, the overall biblical depiction of money is that it has great power. That doesn't necessarily make it intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. It is neither. It is just money. Rather, it has the potential to do wonderful things, and it has the potential to do terrible things. Jesus, when he talks about it, personifies it. He calls it mammon. It's like a god. And it's like a god because money has the power to rule us. It's why those who go after it run the risk, not only, verse 10, of wandering from the faith, i.e. they have exchanged the true God for a poor imitation, the money God. Not only that, but it also can pierce them with many griefs, verse 10. 
So no God other than the true one can bring contentment. None are big enough to fully define us. And therefore, our worship of lesser gods like money actually will end, us, end up bringing us harm, not joy. It is inevitable. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. But now, just a couple of clarifying points on a very famous verse. Paul says, a love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He does not say, as has often been misquoted, money is the root of all evil. Heard that before? There was a song in a book. A love of money is not, sorry, money is not the problem per se. It's a love of it, that is. And a love of money is not the only root of all evil. It's one root, a root. A love of power could be another, a love of lust could be another, and so on and so forth. And finally, a love of money is a root not of evil as a sort of singular composite whole, but rather of all different kinds of evil. It's not picky. It will go for any. So all evil everywhere cannot be traced back to money or even a love of money. Rather, a love of money is one root of lots of different kinds of evil. So it's important, therefore, for us to not focus simply on money in and of itself being the issue. And this, I think, is an important point. We may think that we are being thoroughly Christian in doing so, that money is the big problem, right? Money is a terrible, terrible problem that has destroyed our world. But actually doing that is falling into the money God's grasp, albeit through the back door. We are giving money more worth than it deserves. It becomes a God actually of a different sort, not a God that we want to bow down and worship, but an evil God that it should never be. So we should resist imbuing it with all such power, however noble or um, godly we think our intentions may be. Yes, let us rile against the wealth gap. I don't think God likes people being um, destitute and poor. And obviously some people have huge amounts of money. And I don't think his plan is that some people just get richer and richer and some people get poorer and poorer. Obviously not God's plan. But let us not think that if we just closed the money gap, everything would be better. To do so is to ascribe too great a power to the money God. We obsess over it in an opposite but also starkly similar way to those who worship it. Neither is right. Instead, let us flee from a love of money in whatever form it takes, either positively or negatively. Do you get that? Looking blankly. Good. So that's Paul addressing the poor. An encouragement to contentment and a warning against covetousness. Before we look at the middle section where he addresses Timothy, verse 11 to 16, let us consider what he has to say to the rich. Verse 17, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, for our enjoyment. <laughs> so, second question, third question, I don't know what question we're on. Are you rich? Do you think of yourself as rich? Again, this is not a loaded question. Again, of course, everything is relative. 
You may feel very rich when you drive down Hollywood Boulevard and very poor when you drive down Rodeo Drive, which I always thought should be called Rodeo Drive, and it should have rodeos. Every week, a rodeo. When I'm king, that will be the first thing I do. <laughs> but right now, do you actually feel rich? Notice that Paul does not direct you to divest yourself of your riches. Instead, he gives you two instructions. One positive, one negative. You want the positive one first or the negative one first? Good news or bad news? Always bad news first, right? And then good news afterwards. Okay, bad news first. Here's the negative instruction. Don't be arrogant. Verse 17. Wealth can breed self-importance and vanity, and it can make people look down on other people, particularly those people that haven't got as much money as them. This is deeply unchristian, obviously. But it's not just Christian unethically, uh, it's not just unchristian ethically, it is also unchristian theologically. Why? Well, because it betrays a belief that the money anyone earns or the money that anyone has is actually theirs. This is not the story of the Bible. All the money in the world, the Bible says over and over again, in fact, the whole universe is God's. He owns it all. God it is, verse 18, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He is the one who owns it. So if we have a lot, it may be tied to our hard work and our expertise and our gifts and also, let's be honest, a huge dollop of luck, but it's still God's anyway, all of it. Always has been, always will be. So let us not fall into the trap that thinking our stuff is actually our stuff. He's just letting us borrow it for a bit. This is the quickest and best way to avoid arrogance and pride about what we have. It's also linked to why, secondly, we who are rich should guard against putting our hope in wealth. Firstly, because wealth is so uncertain. Jesus talks about not storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust and thieves can destroy it, but we could also add wildfires and floods and potential global financial collapse based on subprime mortgages and leveraged debt. Secondly, because the proper object of our human hope and trust is not a thing but a person. Only the, the wonderful, glorious God of the whole universe is worthy of anyone putting their faith in. Because he uniquely is the only one able to hold your faith in his uh, warm and kind hands and not abuse it. He's the only one. He's the only one who is able to hold your faith and reward it, not lose it, care for it, look after you. So, as we are all called to do, put your life in his hands once more. He's the only true God. Everything else will disappoint you. Put your life in money's hands and it will eat you alive. Put your life in God's hands and he will raise you up higher than you could ever possibly imagine. So that's the negative news, here's the positive. Paul's positive instruction to the rich. It is literally this, verse 17 and verse 18. Command those who are rich, he says to Timothy, dot, 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 skipping on to verse 18, to be rich. If you're rich, be as you are, says Paul. Not rich, though, for richness' sake, 
but rich in your ability to be able to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and to be willing to share. This is the wonder and joy of being wealthy. You have the privilege of being able to make the world so much better. Verse 19, in this way, they, the rich, will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that, the life that is truly life. So many false versions of life. Paul knows that the life that is truly life is the eternal life, the life of the kingdom, the life of Jesus, the only one that matters. That's the life that we should only ever invest in because it's the good life. Anyone can have it, the poorest and the richest. It's just that for those who have financial means, they also have the opportunity and, in fact, the duty to use their means to bring it in an outsized abundance. It's a wonder to be able to help the kingdom grow exponentially with your wealth. So that's the false teachers, the poor and the rich, finally Paul's charge to Timothy. As I said at the beginning, this is actually um, a talk about worship. Uh, it's the last of our talks about worship. And as Hannah spoke so brilliantly about last week, worship is actually something that we're all inbuilt to do. Worship is inevitable. And so it's not so much a case of if we will worship it, but rather what we will worship. It could be the big G-O-D, or it could be money, sex, or power, or anything else. As humans, we will only be made whole to the degree to which the object of our worship is worthy of such devotion. And from a Christian perspective, only Jesus has that status. So the more we devote our lives to him, the more we are able to live with our hearts and minds and lives open to him, and the more he can therefore pour himself into us. We become what we worship. Worship money? you will become like money. Worship the true living God and you will become generous beyond your wildest dreams, open and kind and full of grace and love and peace. So Paul says to Timothy, as he says to you and me, but you, man of God, woman of God, person of God, flee from all of this. Flee from the false teaching, Flee from the idea that godliness is a means to financial gain. Flee from a love of money. Flee from arrogance and trusting in money. Flee from all of this. Flee from it. Run away. Get as far away as you can from it. It will do you no good. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. In short, pursue the fruit of the Spirit. Because by pursuing the Spirit, you will get the Spirit. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. The Christian life is both active and passive. We have passively received everything because of nothing that we've done just because of the glory and beauty of our God. But we still need to take hold of it daily. We need to fight for godly ethics. We need to fight for healthy Christian doctrine. And we need to fight and take hold of the godly life, the true life. We are people of God's spirit, and therefore, we need to live as spirit-filled people all the time, full of the spirit's truth, and we need to be filled with the spirit's power in order to live the life that we are intended for. 
This is the antidote to covetousness, to arrogance, to any sense of a lack of contentment that we might have. Because when we pursue God, we pursue the one who gives life to everything, verse 13. I.e., the one who is intimately connected with all the details of your life. All the things you're worried about. All the things you care most about. All the things during worship when Tavi was saying there's some things to lay down that we would like to lay down, but we just really need to hold on to them too much. I found this. I know God was speaking to me about something during worship. It's always annoying when he speaks. Uh, particularly when he speaks through Tavia. No, I'm joking. But where's Tavia? She's not even here. Sorry, Tavia. Uh, but God was speaking to me about laying something down. Do you know what I did? That's why I'm telling you. I didn't lay it down. found it too difficult. I'll keep you updated. But it's actually trusting that he cares enough to not abuse our trust in giving things over to him. That he actually is true. What he promises is true. Now, I know that there are people in this room who have a very hard time believing that God cares. Um, as we know, there is a writer's strike at the moment, and that is affecting a huge number of people and their livelihoods. Now, neither I nor Paul are saying, just worship God and everything will be okay. Indeed, the New Testament says something pretty much the opposite. You will have troubles in this life. It is a guarantee. Instead, Paul is saying... Worship God, and despite all inevitable problems, whatever comes at you, you'll still know contentment. You'll still be rich. Instead, you'll know more than just contentment. You will enjoy the eternal life, the life of the Spirit, the life of heaven right here and right now. So we are called to worship God with our whole lives, and our whole lives includes, unfortunately, our bank accounts and our wallets. Our money is intrinsically linked to who you are. It is not just money, it's part of who you are. And if you don't believe me, try giving it all away. Yeah, exactly. It's part of who we are. Martin Luther uh, said, the Christian life requires a conversion of three things, the mind, the heart, and the purse. The most difficult of the three is the purse. Has your wallet been converted? The more, though, that we can order our lives under God, the more we can take the posture of worship, of bowing down before him, the only God who will not lord it, lord it over us, but raise us up. The more we can experience the freedom that that worship brings, freedom from worry about money, freedom from greed about money. And as I said, what we worship, we become, and we will become like him, full of generosity. Just uh, to end, see how Paul can't stop himself from sort of falling into worship. God, he says, verse 13, the God who is blessed and the only ruler, 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. We are called to be worshippers. When we are worshippers, we are set free. Seek first my kingdom, says Jesus, and everything else will be given to you. So to end, we're going to sing a song in a little moment. I just want to say this. Historically and presently, this church has been incredibly generous. I just want you to know that. Uh, Not just in terms of the amount of money that the church gives, but the percentage of people who give it. It's something like three times higher than the national average in terms of the percentage, which is incredible. I just want to say, um, well done. Not for any other reason than God loves that. God loves generosity. Um, And it's very moving to be in a community that is so generous. Um, I've been toying with what I felt like God was saying with regards to this. So normally we do this and we sort of ask that you um, could consider uh, giving money to the church. I I can't shake the feeling that we shouldn't do that. Um, But I do want to encourage you to be generous, even more generous. And maybe just give um, to people you know. People you know who are in need. The church will be fine. Always is. God's in charge. Um, but I, I, so I was going to do a, a, Just to fulfill all righteousness. We're looking for like 20 more st- standing orders. They could be a dollar each. That would be fine. Uh, 20 more like regular monthly giving. But instead, I just want to encourage you, why, why don't you give to someone that you love who needs it? Could you do that? Can I trust you to do that? Instead of anything else? Because that's where the kingdom's built. Good. <sighs> um, let's worship God. And what I would encourage you to do as you worship is ask him to speak to you. I totally trust that the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing much better than I do. So I trust that the Holy Spirit will speak to you. I would be open to what he's saying. If you, someone comes into your mind, if a figure comes into your mind, I would trust that that is God speaking, and I would do it straight away. Don't hesitate, just go and do it, whatever you feel like God is saying. And see how it... You know, when you're generous, it's impossible to be greedy, isn't it? Have you noticed that? It's impossible to go, here, have it all, I want more. You can't do it. And when you're generous, you can't be miserly, obviously. And when you're generous, you can't be worried. You might be worried before, you might be after, but when you're doing it, you're not worried because you're just giving it. That's what generosity is. So if God speaks to you, and he will speak to you, whatever's in your mind, just do it. And don't... um, Uh, don't second guess yourself or him Uh, let us pray for a moment why don't you just ask um, the Holy Spirit to speak to you it may be that you need to um, reassess any regular giving you're, you're, you're doing. It might be that it needs to go up as well as down or down as well as up. But Lord, we want to thank you for 
just so much that you've given us. We thank you that you're a God of abundance and the beautiful universe that you've created. We want to thank you for all that you've done. And we want to be generous people. I pray particularly for those who are in real need in this room. Those who are part of the community who are in real need. We ask, Spirit of the living God, that you would meet every single need as you promised to. And we pray that you would help us be the answer to people's prayers. Would you speak to us now? We love you and we worship you. And we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.